You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. start with our question and answer here for the lunchtime. It's just going to be a short one. We've only only have just a few questions. So if you have something lined up for uh, questions for the last session, please get it to me after the end of our session here or the beginning of the next one. Um, do you have other presentations you can do if there's no Q&A for the last one? Oh, yes. Oh, oh. All right. I can talk for hours if I have to. <laughs> All right, uh, one more announcement. There's plenty of salad left as well as potatoes, so if you'd like a second helping of lunch, you can go right to the back there and uh, help yourself. Even right now while we're talking, you don't have to wait for us to stop. All right, here's a few questions. First, what biblical proof do we have that speaks to Jesus' Jesus' body being perfect like Adam's before the fall? Would sickness and other ailments not have afflicted him? Um, Jesus was and is unique, um, and you have to accept that he was and is unique. And whether or not uh, uh, sicknesses and ailments could have afflicted him, that, that's a sort of different, uh, different matter, isn't it? But uh, he wasn't afflicted with uh, original sin, and that's really what I'm referring to. Uh, which would have given him biological perfection. He wasn't afflicted by original sin. Uh, there are many theories as to how that could be the case, and I can't definitively give you one of those. The one that seems to make some sense to me, um, other people may say something different, the one that seems to make most sense to me, in my opinion, is the fact that, of course, he didn't have an earthly father Maybe it is that our um, our sin, therefore sinful nature, is de- uh, descended through the Father. That's a bit of a, a long shot, and there would be other people who would say, "No, we don't accept that, Paul." But they, they, you know, we have to accept that Jesus was the last Adam, and he was made without original sin. Because if he had sin in him, he'd have to have been dying for his own sin as well as for uh, anything else. But we read in Scripture that he was without sin. He was tempted in every way as we were, but yet without sin. Do you know the number of times the New Testament mentions or references things in Genesis? A lot. I'm sorry, I don't have a figure for that. But, I mean, it's all the way through you can find lots of references and allusions to, uh, to Genesis, a lot of which I've, uh, I've mentioned in my book, uh, Itching Ears, uh, where I'm relating Christian doctrines to Genesis. But there are lots. Uh, we talk about Adam in Romans chapter 5. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you've got that. You've got talking about Jesus creating the world at the beginning of John's gospel and in the first chapter of the book of Colossians and in the first chapter of the book of Hebrews. And you've got plenty about patriarchs in the Old Testament, including Noah in uh, Hebrews chapter 11. So you've got quite a few there that I'm just saying off the top of my head without going into a concordance and searching for others, and that I can be pretty sure there are a lot more. As I said, when it talks at the end of Revelation about there being no more curse and no more death, it's an obvious allusion to the to death and the curse being introduced into the world by God because of man's sin in Genesis chapter 3. These things all tie together in that way. 
One of the most important areas of studies for homeschool teachers or Sunday school teachers to teach kids. What are the most important areas of study? Whatever your children uh, are interested in and it makes sense for them to follow. I really don't think as homeschoolers you need to be bound to produce a little mini school in your own home. I really don't. So whatever you feel would be appropriate. Now, I think there are certain skills that might be of use and, uh, you know, you, you want to look for things like uh, teaching them the essentials of math and so on. I am pretty convinced personally, uh, I've become convinced in the last few years that a classical approach to education is probably the best one. And uh, cl- a classical approach to education looks at education in three phases, grammar, dialectic, and rhetoric. And this, of course, is completely different from the way that public schools are run. Public schools are run both in the United States and in my home country in an evolutionary way, you know. And you think about this, uh, real life is never operated in the same way as uh, as high schools are. Never, okay? I'm, uh, I'm 58 years old, okay? Yeah, it is true that people can live to 58. I'm 58 years old. I have never been in a job where I have to look around and say, right, I'm only working with those other people who are 58 years old. You 57-year-olds, you're just kids. I'm not, I'm not playing with you. Maybe one day I'll be as good as those 61-year-olds. I'll aspire to. It doesn't happen. You do not work with people just your own age. And the idea of an education system based on you evolving from year to year, only ever mixing and only ever learning with people who are the same age as you, is complete nonsense and very, very unbiblical. So it's best to look at things in this manner. Start with grammar. Uh, grammar, not we're not just talking about English language grammar, we're talking about fact-based stuff. Young children from about 5 to about 11 or so are very good at memorizing things. It doesn't matter if they can't use that knowledge at that time. That's why it's such a good idea to do things, some of the old traditional things like learning the times tables, things like that, because they can do that. And, of course, make sure they get a thorough grounding in the word by making sure they learn Bible verses at that stage or even whole books of the Bible. Because I can tell you, when I try and learn a Bible verse now, it takes me a very long time. It's hard work, very hard work. So... That's an attitude to education. Basically, I would say you're trying to get them to memorize things at that age. Then they're eventually going to get, and it's just not an age thing. It might be approximately average, the age 11, but for some it might be younger, some it might be older, that they're going to get into using that stuff in a logical manner, which is what we refer to as dialectic. They start to... Uh, 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 place things in logical order and you start to teach them to do that and then eventually at sort of older high school age approximately 14 or 15 but again for some it might be younger for some it might be older they're going to get into the rhetorical area where they're able to think outside the box and use these things and put into all sorts of different contexts so that sort of approach is a very good one and uh, I would recommend it uh, uh, some of you, I believe, in this church are involved in a classical conversations group. That's a very good organization. It's not the only one, but it's a very good one uh, to be involved in. That's the sort of things that I say. So I'm not giving you individual subjects. I'm talking about the sort of education there that uh, I think is best for young people, in my opinion. You mentioned the water canopy no longer being believed by most yep. creation science models. What other incorrect things do biblical creationists commonly believe? Yeah. 
What you've got to remember here, I want to be very gracious to people. It's very, very important, this. The Bible is completely true, and we start from the Bible. The Bible never changes. The problem is that sometimes some of us have confused our scientific models that we use to try and explain certain things about the Bible. Um, we use those as if they are Scripture. One example of that would be uh, when I first became a Christian and I was first learning about this creationism thing, um, and I, I think I've had a hint there's going to be another question on this subject later, so I'm not going to delve into it too far. But, you know, how do you explain, for example, that starlight can get millions of light years across the galaxy if we believe that the universe is only 6,000 years old? Well, one of the original ideas creationists have, and I'll just mention just this one thing at this moment, one of the original ideas that creationists have is that maybe light was created along the way so that it only had another 6,000 light years to travel, that the light was created along with the star. Although it's perfectly possible, it doesn't make a lot of sense because you, we sometimes see explosions in space. We sometimes see a supernova where a star explodes. Well, that star itself can't be there anymore, and God made the picture of the explosion there on its way, if you follow that model. It doesn't make sense, and I think we're pretty certain now that is not the way that starlight was created to travel that uh, that distance. Uh, there are one or two other methods which are better and more biblical than that. So that would be one, another example then of something that creationists would have believed that we don't believe anymore. But it hasn't changed the fact that the Bible's true. It hasn't changed the fact that God made the sun, moon, and stars, and he made them on day four. And the fact that we've developed different, different biblical models different scientific models to explain the Bible, has not changed our belief in the Bible. Does that make sense? The Bible's true. We hold tight to the Bible and very, very loosely to our scientific models. Okay? Another example of that would be the idea that starlight has decreased in its speed over time. That is true. The second, uh, the second uh, major explanation uh, for how starlight traveled millions of, years, uh, millions of light years across space in just... Uh, uh, a short period of time, is the idea that the speed of light has changed and decayed over time, that it must have been much faster in the past. Now, that's um, that could make sense biblically, but does not make sense scientifically, because the speed of light is actually a constant on which many other processes in the universe depend. One of the main ones there would be radioactive decay. So if the speed of light was very much faster in the past, then radioactive decay would have been much faster, which means with the amount of radioactive material on the Earth, the radiation would have killed people when the speed of light was even just twice or three times as fast as it is today. So that model doesn't work either. We've, therefore, we've rejected that idea that the speed of light has changed. Do you make videos of evolution versus creation for homeschoolers? Um, I'm not that skilled with video stuff, so if there is someone here who is skilled with video stuff who wants to film me talking about those things, I will do so. I try and write materials. I believe in the importance of video. I don't have those skills. I do a little bit sometimes just as a talking head to a webcam, but that's not really what we need. We need more than that. There are some people, however, who I would recommend who are already doing this. The main one would be an organization called Awesome Science Media, uh, which is headed up by my friend Kyle Justice and his family. And uh, they have been producing DVDs for a long time on a variety of important topics, um, 
all sorts of uh, important topics to do with evolution and creation. And they have recently, because a lot of us no, don't buy DVDs anymore. I, I, I don't buy DVDs anymore. I don't know about you. I get things, um, I either download the videos or I use Roku channels to, uh, to view them. Well, Awesome Science Media, they've produced this thing called Awesome Science TV, and it is a Roku channel. So you subscribe to that Roku channel for a small amount. At the moment, they're charging $5 a month. And you, uh, you can, uh, get all their videos then, uh, on, um, all the videos that have been produced by them. There are a large number of videos they've done. They've done a whole series of astronomy based ones, which feature, uh, Dr. Danny Faulkner, Dr. Jason Lyle, um, uh, and a few other, um, Dr. Russell Humphreys and a couple of other astrophysicists. And uh, there's a whole series of, uh, of astro- astronomy-based ones. They've done a whole series of wildlife documentaries. They've done a few one-off documentaries so that you may have come across certain people who for some reason have decided that the Bible teaches that the earth is flat. This is a nonsensical idea that nobody in the past has ever believed. Nobody has ever believed that the earth is flat. People, that was actually a myth invented by early evolutionists to try and discredit, uh, people who believe the Bible. So, uh, um, awesome science media, uh, my friends, uh, Carl Justice and Pat Roy have produced a, um, a film on, uh, the flat earth. And, uh, that is on their Roku channel well worth having a look at. And, uh, Pat Roy is go- will be the new, uh, is going to be the new director of the Mount St. Helens Creation Center. So I know those guys very well. Okay. So this question I think is based on, comes out of a misunderstanding of something you said, I think it was last night. You said this is a family gathering because we're all related through God. So does that mean, or are we related, uh, so does that mean, or are we related to the ones who don't believe in God and Jesus and everything they did for us? We are all biologically related to Adam. We are all descended from Adam, everyone. So we are all related. That's the point that I was making. Okay, I'm not referring there to any spiritual relationship. Of course we are. There are two types of people in the world who are completely separate. By the way, before I say that, shall I just say that since we are all biologically descended from Adam, how many races of people are there in the world? One. One. On your census form, when they asked you what race you were, did you put a line through that and write Adam's race, like I did? (laughs) There is only one race of people. You might say, hold on, we're all different colors. No, we're not. There's only one color. It's called melanin. And some of my brethren have got a lot of melanin in their skin, and some, like me, have got very little. And there's a continuum in between. And I know it's a slightly bit more complicated than that, but it is basically that. And there is one color. And there is one shape of eye. And you say, well, hold on a minute. Chinese people have got almond-shaped eyes. Western people do not. But you'll actually find that that's because of certain fatty deposits there are in the eyes. And some people have a lot of those deposits, and some people have very little. And there is a continuum between. So there is actually only one eye shape. There is only one race of people. We're all descended from Adam. And if there are any Christians who develop any theology that says, no, there are different races, and that therefore it is wrong, for example, for a white Christian person to marry a black African-American Christian person, then that is unbiblical. 
And I'll underline that. That is unbiblical. And any racist argument is unbiblical. But there are two groups of people in the world as well as there being one group. And the two groups of people in the world are there are those who have repented and put their trust in Jesus and those who have not. And those are where you shouldn't have mixed marriages so that a black Christian and a black non-Christian should not get married. A white Christian and a white non-Christian should not get married. But a black Christian and a black, uh, a black Christian and a white Christian, they're the same race. And therefore there's no, and there's actually no problem either with a black non-Christian and a white non-Christian getting married because that's common grace. Okay. What do evolutionists say about the layers of rocks that quickly formed in the canyons at Mount St. Helens? Uh, they say they're very surprised by them. <laughs> That's true. You look in all the visitor centers there and they say these processes that normally take a long period of time seem to have happened very quickly here. Remarkably quickly. They can't, you know, it's a surprise, but they have to accept the image of their eyes. But they now talk about instead of, uh, it becomes a sort of almost a punctuated equilibrium view that instead of believing that things have gone along slowly, they believe that they've gone in jumps and they talk, uh, they film in the Johnston, the Johnston Ridge Observatory talks about a constant cycle of destruction and reconstruction instead of just a sort of slow continual one. But it, it's only because they react to things. You know, Okay, as a science teacher, when I was a public school science teacher, I taught young people the scientific method. And the scientific method is this, that you develop a hypothesis to explain the observations. A hypothesis is not fact. It is a well-developed model that explains the observations. If you develop it well enough, it becomes a theory. But a theory is never a fact. But a theory is a good thing. It's a well-developed model. That's why you shouldn't criticize evolution by saying it's just a theory. If you say it's just a theory, you don't really understand what the word theory means. A theory is a well-developed explanation that, ex uh, uh, that, uh, uh, that it explains observations. But if you find one observation that doesn't fit your theory, then according to the scientific method, you reject the entire theory because the theory does not work. Does that ever happen? No. Why not? Because people have invested so much time and money and prestige in it, and they can't do it. So the theory of evolution becomes not a scientific process, but more like a student car. Now, I don't know whether you have these these days, because all young people seem to drive cars these days, but when I was a university student, most university students couldn't afford cars, but every so often you did afford a car. I was in digs with three other guys. There were four of us. Only one of us had a car. My friend Pete had a car, and it was a student car. It was a rust bucket, if you know what I mean by that. When the fender fell off, he tied it on with string. When the exhaust fell off, he tied it on with string. And when there was a crack in the side of the uh, vehicle, he covered it over with duct tape. And before long, the whole car was held together by string and duct tape. That's what happens to the theory of evolution. When they find something that doesn't work, instead of rejecting the theory, they develop a little coping mechanism. And they basically tie it on with string or stick it in place with duct tape. And the whole theory of evolution today is held together with string and duct tape. It's actually not a scientific theory. So you should never say the theory of evolution is just a theory. It's not even a theory. 
Uh, what is the motivation for Christians who practice or promote old earth creationism, such as Hugh Ross? What's their motivation? Their motivation is that that's the way that they have been trained, and therefore they have a worldly worldview, an unbiblical worldview, that they refuse to let go of because they refuse to submit to Scripture. And if that sounds harsh, I can't think of any other explanation. I'm sorry. Describe how much creationists are involved or not involved in the research like Arctic's core samples. <clears throat> Focus on the facts and interpretation aspects. Okay, I'm not a research scientist. I do know some creationists who are research scientists, but if you want to look at individual areas of research, you'll need to have a look at some of the research sites. So you might need to have a look at uh, things like um, what you might find in the Answers Research Journal, on the, which is part of the Answers in Genesis webpage, or you might need to join the Creation Research Society and uh, read their quarterly reports to see what research is being done on things like that. I'm not aware of that because I'm not a, I'm not a researcher. I'm not even a scientist. To be a scientist, you've got to have a PhD and done some published work in science. I haven't. I'm a science educator. You know, I'm a science teacher. Like they say, if you can do something, you do it. If you can't do it, you teach it. And <laughs> that's what I've always followed. So uh, seriously, I'm not a science. I, I try and take the difficult ideas that uh, some of these creation researchers do and make them simple. So I'm afraid I can't really comment on who is doing that. But I know there are some, and you can find them if you have a look on the Creation Research Society lists. Maybe that's probably the best place to look. CRS.org. Uh, sorry, no, creationresearch.org. That's the site you want to look at. What is the most difficult old earth argument for you to explain. Pick one that is based on a current day observable phenomenon. Well, it's, what does the question mean? Does it mean what's the most difficult one for me to refute? <clears throat> what's the most difficult one that I think is challenging so that maybe I might be tempted away from a, a young earth view? Remember, I told you that I don't call myself a young earth creationist. I call myself a biblical creationist because these things are in the Bible. So an old earth creationist is an unbiblical creationist because they're not accepting what the Bible clearly teaches about the days of creation and the age of the earth. So because I start from that point, there isn't any old earth argument that I cannot refute because I will refute it theologically. It is impossible because it undermines the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're saying which is the most difficult one for you to explain away, there are some that I struggle to explain away on that basis. I can find you a theological reason, but if you want the science behind it, then maybe some might be difficult. The most difficult one is the starlight and time issue. Uh, how do we explain that starlight has come millions of light years across the universe and we can see those stars now if the universe is only 6,000 years old? You might think, how do we get those millions of light years into 6,000 years? Though actually the problem's worse than that because we have to assume that the stars were made on day four. We have to assume that Adam could see those stars. So actually, we have to say, how did the light get from millions of light years out in space across the universe, not in 6,000 years, but in two days? Well, there are explanations. What I cannot do is tell you which one is true. There are currently five competing models. Two of them I've already told you and rejected. Okay. Two of them I've already told you and rejected. 
They are the, uh, the idea that light was created en route. Uh, the other one was the idea that the speed of light has decayed. The other three, I can't tell you which one is true. I can tell you which one I prefer, but the other three are all biblical and all work. So number three is what's known as gravitational time dilation, an idea <laughs> developed by the scientist Dr. Russell Humphreys. His idea, and this is factual, that uh, as you... Um, as uh, gravity increases, time actually slows down. Time is slower if there is more gravity. So if the universe was a lot smaller when it was created, then there would be a lot more gravity close to the center of the universe. And if we assume that the Earth is near the center of the universe, it means that time would have gone very slowly near the center, so there could have been millions of years' worth of star formation at the event horizon while only one day, one 24-hour day, day four, went by on Earth, okay? That works. It's not my preferred one, but it works and it is biblical. Are you okay with that? A second one, which is more recent, has been developed by Dr. Danny Faulkner from um, Answers in Genesis, and he calls it the <coughs> Dasha model, based on the Hebrew word Dasha, which is used to explain how plants were produced. Because if you notice in the Bible, in, um, in various versions of the Bible, it says things like that God caused the plants not just to appear, but to sprout. In other words, full-grown trees appeared not as a fully-grown tree, but the seedling came from the ground and very quickly became a tree, all during that, maybe an hour or two, during that uh, third day of creation. Are you okay with that? And uh, Dr. Danny Faulkner thinks that maybe in the same way stars were put in place by God making them just accelerate their process during that one day of creation. And he thinks everything could have sprouted like that. Um, it's not a scientific model, but I don't mind that because, as, uh, as Danny points out, this was not normal science during creation week. This was God in creation mode. And it wasn't until after the six days were finished that God said, you know, that's the finish of creation. And therefore, normal scientific laws only came into place on day seven. Are you okay with that? Mm-hmm. But that's not my preferred one either. <laughs> and the other model, which is equally biblical. Hold but on, hold on, hold on. Yeah. Hold on. Can anybody guess where this comes from? Yes. There we go. So I, I guess had to see if anybody had a memory from last year. Well, in that case, then I would imagine that uh, Dr. Lyle explained this to you 12 months ago, so you all understand it. So no. I don't need to go into that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jason's idea is called alternate synchrony convention, and it works on uh, um, the fact that if you look at Einsteinian physics, you realize that uh, the speed of light is only an average value. Okay, remember your high school physics, please. Do you know the difference between speed and velocity? Yes, sir. Well, you could measure velocity in miles per hour, to be fair. You're on the right lines, but I better tell you, velocity means a set direction because no force, something uh, Newton's laws suggest that everything remains in a constant state of rest or uniform motion unless acted on by an external force. So if you're driving in the car at a constant 40 miles per hour and you turn right, you might still be driving 40 miles an hour, but you have changed velocity. You have not changed speed, but you've changed velocity because it requires a force to change direction. Not a big force. Your hands are capable of doing that force, but you have used a force to change direction. 
Okay, so if you go somewhere and back again, that cannot be a velocity, that's a speed. Now, how do you measure the speed of light? The, the normal way of measuring the speed of light is this. You fire a laser at the moon, and you bounce it off one of the mirrors that the Apollo astronauts left there. And uh, so it comes back again, and you measure how long that laser light has taken. And because we know how far away the moon is, it's gone twice that distance, so we can measure its speed. Here's what uh, Jason Lyle points out. You don't know what speed or even velocity that light was going in one way, do you? You don't know the velocity of the light from here to the moon, and you don't know the velocity of the light from the moon to Earth. You only know the average speed of the light there and back. Do you see that? It might have gone a different speed to the moon and back again. How would you know? The answer is you would have two measurements, wouldn't you? You'd send an astronaut to the moon. So you've got a clock here on Earth and a clock on the moon. And the laser is fired to the moon. And when it gets there, you stop the clock. Here's a problem. How do you make sure those two clocks are synchronized? The only way you could do that is by sending a signal by radio from Earth to Moon, but that travels at the speed of light, the very value that you're trying to measure. Or maybe you could have both clocks here on Earth and take what synchronize them then and take one of them to the Moon. What's the problem with that? As soon as you move, a higher velocity means that time runs slower. That's what Einstein teaches, and we have proved that to be the trick case. We can verify that. So those clocks were synchronized on Earth. Now they're no longer synchronized, and the only way to work out how far out of sync they are is by using a value that involves the speed of light, once again, the very value that you are trying to measure. So therefore, you can see, you can prove, therefore, that it is not possible to measure the speed in one direction or the other. You've only got an average one. And it is therefore perfectly feasible within Einsteinian physics that the light going from Earth to Moon goes at only half the speed of light, and the light coming from the Moon to the Earth is almost instantaneous. And the thing could be the same with all the stars in the universe. So without breaking any of the laws of Einsteinian physics, light could have got from all the stars millions of light years ago to Earth instantly, because you're dealing with light in only one direction. And the speed of light is a two-way average phenomenon. Okay, and that one seems to make so much simple sense to me even though some of the some of the parts are a bit mind-boggling, that that is the one I prefer. But all three of those things I've mentioned, I can't tell you which one is the absolute correct one because it's not in Scripture. They all fit with Scripture. They all make sense. And uh, you choose which one you like. And you might say, well, that's no good. You've got to tell me which one is the truth. I can't. I'm sorry. But the fact that you have more than one is fine. By the way, evolutionists don't bother about that. There's actually more than one theory of evolution. Do you know that? And there's certainly more than one theory of how things happened in space. Do you know that? They don't tell you that, but there is. Like, if you ever heard about the Hobbit people in Indonesia, was discovered by people who do not believe the out-of-Africa model. You must have been taught that all human beings were supposed to have evolved from eight men in East Africa, in the, uh, um, in the, one of these, in a gorge in Tanzania. But the what people who discovered those Hobbit people in Indonesia, they don't believe that. They believe a different theory of evolution because there are competing ones. So the idea that we don't know and we have more than one model that works is not an embarrassment. That's the way science works. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. 
We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.